Well, good evening. I want to thank the leadership of the congregation for allowing me to kick off this series. It's uh, an honor and it's humbling. And uh, I want to thank you as a congregation of people for being here. It's been a long year plus, and it's time for us to be here. It's time for us to come in contact with each other again, and it's time to get rid of those masks. So God, thank you for allowing us to be able to be here and to do that. I'd like for you to take your Bibles tonight. Mark asked me uh, last week, he said, uh, you're going to bring slides. I spent two-thirds of my career uh, working with uh, clinicians, trying to teach them how to utilize and then support electronic medical records. I'm retired. <laughs> I even have the shirt to prove it, okay? So there's no slides. We're going to go old school. I encourage you to take your Bible, whether it be digital or hard copy, and follow along tonight. We're not going to be moving to a number of scriptures, but the ones that we're going to look at, I'd like for you to look at afresh. I want you to listen to what God says to us. He always has something new to bring to us. So if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. We're starting there because you're going to get a twofer tonight if I can get it all in within the 30 minutes I have left, okay? I was taught that a good lesson had three points. So you're going to get lesson number one with three points and lesson number two with three points. <laughs> now, if it's any encouragement to you, the second three points are very short, okay? They're the takeaways. But we need to spend some time with the first three so we'll be ready to accept and deal with the latter three. When the world was created, it was created in perfection. Everything was perfect, even humanity. But in Genesis chapter 3, something transpires that has thrown everything out of balance since that time. And it will remain out of balance until God comes again. Until God, Jesus Christ comes to resurrect the dead and carry us home with him, everything's going to be out of balance. But here's where it started. I'm supposed to be talking about the renewal of belief, the renewal of our belief. But before we can talk about belief, we need to talk about something else, and that's something called doubt. And so if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, there we read about someone who was very active before creation, but he's very active today as well. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice her response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the, uh, eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it, touch it, or you die. Now, if you go back and see what God actually said, she added a little bit to it. But the gist of it is there. There was one prohibition. And notice what Satan has done. He has put doubt in her mind. 
He has planted a seed that she has never experienced prior to that time. The seed of doubting the Lord Creator, Jesus Christ. Then we come down and look in verse 4. He says, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Underline eyes. Satan uses our eyes to cause doubt, to tempt us, to destroy us. He always works through the eyes. Because notice how she responds. He says, you'll be like God. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, her appetite. It was a delight, a delight to look at. It was appealing. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, ambition, misdirected ambition. And so with that incident, Satan introduced doubt where before that time we had total trust and faith. We believe God totally, unquestionably. But at this point, doubt has entered the world. There is a, an author that I recommend to you. I don't recommend all of his writings because they're too lengthy. And for me, many of them are too technical. But his name is Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, anybody familiar with Dr. Habermas? He's the apologetics professor over the graduate studies at Liberty University. He's been so for 30 years. But his story goes back well before that. Dr. Habermas did his dissertation in the resurrection of Jesus. And through his efforts over the past 40 years, all the notable skeptics concur that Jesus, in all probability, in all likelihood, was raised from the dead. 90 plus percent of them, before he got his degree and before he started his ministry, it was 20 percent. They would concede that. So basically, we can say it's unquestionable that Jesus, from just the fact basis, was raised from the dead. He spent 40 years writing 22-plus books. He's currently writing his uh, magnus opus, his great last edition. It's going to be 4,500 pages after it's printed. I am not going to buy a copy and read it over a weekend. But not 450 pages, 4,500, and only 10% of it comes from previously published material that he's written. So he's a brilliant individual. But there's something about Dr. Habermas that's even more remarkable. When he was working on his doctorate in apologetics, and he was writing his dissertation over the resurrection of Jesus, he went through some very difficult times. His young wife died of stomach cancer leaving him with four young boys. And not too long after that, he lost his father and his mother. And so we have this man who's dedicated to the studies of Christianity, understanding and writing to support the, the realities of them. And he goes through a period of 10 years of doubt, 
Ten years of doubt. Because of that, for the past 30 years, he's worked with over 200 individuals who've gone through similar doubts and assisted them in working their way through those doubts that they might be true believers and continue to be believers in the promises that God has made to us. Remarkable individual. And during that time, he wrote a book called, um, wrote a book called Dealing with Doubt. And in that, he gives three types of doubt that I'd like for us to look at briefly tonight because it may help us. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't have any doubts. I've never doubted God. Let me start with a confession. There have been times in my life when I didn't trust and believe God. I doubted it. You see, there's been times in my adulthood when jobs came and they went and there were periods of drought and my giving to God was withheld because I didn't trust him enough to provide. Can any of you relate? Can any of you find some part of your walk with Jesus where he promises you something, but then you kind of said, mm, not so sure about it. How many are sure you're going to go to heaven? Raise your hands. Okay. I only see a small fraction. He told us you are. You just expressed doubt. God has guaranteed that you and I will live with him for eternity because we have put our faith and our trust in him. So we all struggle with doubts. They come in different forms and different packages, and we have to deal with them in different ways. But I'd like to talk about three different types very briefly and then uh, move on to some uh, ways to build belief. If you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Jesus has just taken... Peter, James, and John up on a mountainside. It's called the Transfiguration. They just had an experience that was unbelievable. I wish we could spend some time there because what they saw of Jesus at that point may be a little clue of what we're going to be like someday. Something very remarkable took place. Following that experience, they come down from the mountainside and he finds his other disciples in the midst of a, something very disturbing. Beginning in verse 14, it says, When Jesus, Peter, James, and John came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. And when the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about? Someone in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever he, it seizes him, it throws him down, and it foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked you, your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Something that we may not normally be aware of, 
But the rabbis of the time had oral traditions that dealt with demons and the casting out of demons. It was something they believed in. It's something that they practiced. But there was one thing that had to accompany it for them to be successful. They had to ask the name of the demon. On another occasion, if you'll remember, Jesus goes across the east side of Lake Galilee. And when he gets there, there's a man who is filled with demons, multiple demons. And he asks, what is your name? And he said, legions, because I am many. That followed the rabbinic traditions. But here we have a situation where the demon prevents the young lad from being able to talk. So he cannot find out the name. So he comes to the man and he says, uh, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to help me. I want you to relieve my son, save my son, because his life is at stake. And he says, if you can help, please help me. Jesus responds, and notice the way Jesus often responds. Sometimes he responds, it sounds harsh to us, but what he's really trying to do is awaken the person he's speaking with to some other bit of truth. So he says to me, if I can, he said, this one takes belief. Notice the man's response. He was very honest. He says to Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. The man didn't know who Jesus was other than his reputation. He knew he was a teacher. He knew that he had done remarkable miracles. And he believed that he could remove in a normal set of circumstances the demon from the possessed. The rabbis could do that. And he believed that Jesus had that power. His disbelief came in that he didn't know if he could do it because the name couldn't be given. This type of doubt we can label factual doubt. He didn't know who he was really talking to. If he had realized he was talking to the creator of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he may have not had a bit of doubt. But he didn't have all the facts yet. And so there was this little lingering doubt that can this really happen? And so we call that factual doubt. The third type of doubt, no, I didn't forget number two, and there's a reason. We'll come back to number two. But the third type of doubt is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. As Jesus was setting out on a, on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Now, what did I say just a while ago? When Jesus comes back to somebody and it sounds a little harsh, he's trying to tell us something. Always be alert to that. When he says, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. What's he really saying? He's trying to give the man a little bit of a hint of who he's talking to. So why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. I've run through that list many times. You know what I didn't notice? Of all the human relations, he left out one. Now, as I continue to talk, see if you can figure out which one it was. And the young man said to him, I've done this ever since my youth. I've done all these. Well, you and I know that that's probably an overstatement. He's a little bit more, uh, he wasn't aware of his reality. Let's just say that. But then Jesus says something to him. He says to him, she's sure I've kept these from, Luke, from my youth. Look at him. Jesus loved him. There was something very special about this man. Jesus saw so much potential and he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. Covetousness. Covetousness is not just wanting what other people have. It's part of it is hanging on to what we have been blessed with. And as we continue to read, we find out that this man is very upset and he grieves because he has great possessions. He's very wealthy. This is what we call volitional doubt. He is making a conscious decision to say, too much, God, not going there. I'll take care of the other ones. I'll live by those standards, but you ask too much. Let me give you another example of that one. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 and skipping down to verses 9 through 11, as we approach this text, Jesus has raised Lazarus. Lazarus had died. And what's interesting about this and has some impact on this particular verses we're going to read is the, the Jews believed that when a person died, their spirit hovered over the deceased body for three days. But on the fourth day, it would depart and go live in Sheol. How long had Lazarus been dead when he was raised? Four days. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus has raised from the dead. Verse 9, Then a large crowd of the Jews heard he was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised, was raised from the dead. Now notice what the reaction of, of the chief priest, and it's plural because there were two at the time. One sort of retired, one who was in charge. But he was dis, uh, excuse me. Um, but the chief priest had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. How long had the Jews anticipated the coming Mashiach? Centuries. 
They long for the day of the Messiah. Yet now the chief priests valued their position more than the Messiah. Only the Messiah could do what Jesus had done. Only God could do what Jesus had done. Yet they chose to disbelieve to the point they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. That's volitional doubt. There's one more, and that's the third one that I was talking about. And if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 14. We'll look at verses 22 through 32. When you come to that passage, Jesus had just been informed that John the Baptist had been beheaded. So Jesus takes his disciples because his time hadn't come, and they move. And as they do so, certain things begin to transpire, and there's the 5,000 men plus women and children who have gathered together. And so he teaches them. Remember, he was trying to get out of the public eye for just a little while and let things simmer down, prepare for what was to come. And these 5,000 plus women and children, it says, they come to hear him. They come to cling to him. They come to hear him. And there's some inference that they may have had some other things in mind, such as a new kingdom being established by force and making him the general to lead them, the king to lead them. There seems to be some implications of that. Anyway, he uh, teaches them, and notice what happens. He turns to his disciples, and he says, get in the boat and go. That's about how strong it was. It wasn't curse. It wasn't coarse. But he talked to him very firmly. You get in the boat and you go. And then he goes up to the mountain to pray. Then notice what happens beginning in verse 22. Excuse me. Um, uh, verse, uh, well, later on down in the passage. Jesus comes back in the middle of the night. The winds are blowing. The disciples are having a very difficult time crossing from one side of Lake uh, Galilee to the other. And they're rowing against the wind, and the waves are making it very difficult for them. These are experienced sailors. And one other thing I'd like for you to notice, whenever there is something like that happening on Lake Galilee, and his disciples are frightened, Satan may be involved in whipping up something that's much stronger than they've ever seen before. And this may be one of those occasions. They're working as hard as they can to get back across to the other side as Jesus has instructed them. And then all of a sudden, they notice something. In the dark of night, there's one coming toward them, and they think it's a ghost. Jesus speaks to them and says, no, it is me. By the way, that doesn't mean anything for me. It just means that you're supposed to wake up now. <laughs> Jesus is coming toward them. He says, it's me. They begin to realize it is him. They begin to relax a little bit, at least from their fear. 
but he's walking on the water. He's walking to them across that treacherous sea that's been whipped up by the wind. Peter, being Peter, being a man of action and a man of often great courage, turns to Jesus and yells out to him, may I come to you? And I can see Jesus looking at Peter and smiling. He said, come on. Peter begins to step out of the boat and walk toward Jesus. Everything's fine. But notice as you read, it says he saw the waves. In other words, he took his eyes off of Jesus. Satan's working again through the eyes on Peter, distracting him from the one he sees, the one he knows has the power to give him the ability to walk on water with him. He's experiencing it with him, and now he's turned away from him, and he begins to doubt. And we know the story. He begins to sink. Jesus reaches down, lifts him up, takes him back to the boat. We call that type of doubt emotional doubt. And the reason I say that one for the last is that that's the most common. It's easy for us when we doubt due to facts, to go in and get some guidance or to do a little study and fill in the gaps. Get the facts that support and help us to understand so that our belief may no longer be doubted. The volitional side, we've all been guilty of it. By God's grace, most of us have repented of it. In fact, there's a song, it's a contemporary song, and we get to a point to where we say, well, let's hold on to that one. Let's come back to that one. The emotional side is the difficult one because it deals with feelings rather than what we think, what we understand. It, it, it goes against those type of things many times. A while ago, I asked you, how many of you believe and know with all your hearts that you're going to heaven? I asked you to raise your hands. A lot of you didn't. That's emotional doubt because we have the facts and we still believe and we pursue Jesus with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. But emotionally, I'm not sure. I started to mention a song a while ago. There's a song, contemporary song, Christian song out that talks about our sins and how they're there and how we struggle with them. And we ask God to forgive us and he does. And then we face him again and we're hesitant to go to him because we kept, keep going back for the same thing. And the song talks about, but it's only the first time with God. You see, the previous time when he forgave you, he not only forgives it, he blots it out. It doesn't exist. It never existed in his mind. Only in ours. Those are the three types of, of doubts. And I'd like for you to, to struggle with those a little bit as you look at your own life. And where your doubts are, examine. Is it something that's based on lack of facts? Is it something that you've said to God, I know you said to live this way and to, to do treat my life in this, this fashion, but I'm not going to do it? Or more likely, is it something more emotional? I just don't feel like God's forgiven me. I just don't feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Now, in conclusion, let me give you the second lesson with three quick points. 
There are certain ways that you and I can renew and expand our belief and trust in God. The first one is listen to God speak to us. And he does that through his word. But I'm going to suggest a way that's a little different than what we normally suggest. Normally we say, get your Bible out and read, read, read. Every day, read something from the Bible or just get a reading plan. I'm going to suggest something different. I'm going to suggest that you get your Bible and get it in an audible form. You can do that for free if it's with a smartphone at version, And just listen to God speak to you. But I want you to listen in a certain way. I want you to listen as it's the first time you ever heard it. Because we've always bring stuff with us. Try as, di- as diligently as you can to set those things aside and listen anew. And if you'll do that with regularity, I guarantee you there will be surprise blessings come to you each time you listen. There'll be something there that you missed before because you said, oh, I'm familiar with that, and you just read right through it. I want you to listen. Let God speak to you. Second, prayer. We need to talk to God. We need to speak to Him. He wants to hear from us. He knows what everything. But he, we need to speak to Him. He needs to hear us speak to Him because it's beneficial to us. And when you pray, okay, let me give you, give you something here that, that I do and just as a possibility of something you need to consider. I spend a little time thanking God. I spend a little time asking Him to lead and guide me and help me to be faithful. But I spend the majority of my time praying for you. Some of you by name because I know you. But every day I spend time in prayer praying for you and others. And one of the things I pray each and every day is that God will help us to share in a legacy of faithfulness and trust. I encourage you each and every day, it doesn't have to be for all of us, but start with yourself and someone and pray every day that God will intercede and bless each of you. And lastly, accountability. For 47 years, God blessed me. He gave me a person I could go to and tell her anything. There were no secrets that had to be withheld. She was going to be there, and she was going to listen and she was going to empathize with me. And she was going to encourage me. And confront me. There were times that I didn't exactly appreciate it at the time that she confronted me. You know why? She loved me more than her own life. Find somebody in this life, whether it be your spouse or a friend, 
that you can go to and be accountable to. Someone that you can say anything. There's certain rules, and if you want to talk about those, I'll give you the rules. There's certain rules on how to do this. But someone you can go to and you can tell them anything that's on your heart, anything you're struggling with, anything you have joy about, anything at all, that they will help you to stay faithful to God. So the three things I'm encouraging you to do to nurture your or renew your belief is listen to God, talk to God, and be accountable. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to you with bodies bowed, souls bowed, and spirits bowed. Help us, Father, in our unbelief. Strengthen us in our belief. And in all things, glory and honor to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May God's blessings be on all of you.